Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 24 through 30. Kind of this strange thing happens, and I don't know if this happens to you when we're singing songs like that or hearing songs like that, but um, I see words like, even in my death, I will follow you. And I just tremble a little bit, you know? I just tremble a little bit. And uh, probably even more so this morning, because I know that the passage after the one we're studying this morning is Peter. You know, it's Peter. And, of course, Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go to you, with you both to prison and to death. <laughs> and, of course, we know that um, that's not exactly how the story goes uh, in, the, in the immediate future, right? And so um, you tremble a little bit when you hear when I sing songs like that. And I also think... Praise God for his glorious grace that he is the one who's keeping me. And he is the one who is keeping me to the end. And, and I want for you, when you sing songs like that, to recognize that it is the grace of God that any of that be true. That any of that be true. There is nothing in you that in and of yourself in your death, would follow Jesus there. There is absolutely nothing in you, in and of yourself, that would do such things. And why that matters is because uh, the issue with the disciples in our passage this morning is them arguing about um, themselves concerning who is the greatest. And so pride is lurking ever at the door. And so let's turn to the word of the Lord and see what it has to say about our pride. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table? Or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we need the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. We need your Holy Spirit to search us and show us our pride and to encourage us and teach us the way of Christ. 
So we pray that you would search every heart that's in your hearing this morning. That you would lead us to repentance in every proud and selfish ambition and every self-exaltation and you would teach us the way of servanthood and of genuine humility. May we be among one another as those who serve. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the context of this passage makes it remarkably striking. It's not striking that the disciples are having dispute about who is the greatest in and of itself. They've done this before. Now, you can go back to Luke chapter 9, and they were having the same argument. But the context is particularly striking here because we're in the middle of the Lord's Supper. And um, as we studied last week, right, you have this intimate reclining at table environment, and it's not just the Lord's Supper as we think of the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord with his disciples experiencing and instituting the first Lord's Supper. It's an intimate environment at table together. Jesus with them and they with him. And not only that, not only that, this is the last meal that Jesus is going to share with his disciples and his disciples with them because at this point, you know, Thursday evening, it's really a few short hours away before, you know, the group is going to come to gather to, to take Jesus away and before his trial and final suffering and death is going to happen before he's going to leave them. We're really hours away from the trial and really not many hours away from the cross at this point. And so they partake, they partake of the Lord's table and then right there, right there, this is the new covenant in my blood and a dispute arises. And I just want to note this first. Pride is always at the doorstep of good men. Pride is always at the doorstep of good men. Always. In fact, that word dispute there, I'm not a big fan of teaching you Greek words, but um, in the original it's a compound word that just means love of glory, or love of victory, or desire for glory. And of course, it's a contention, and so that word obviously is the only time it's used in the New Testament here, and that word is chosen in particular to emphasize what the disciples are doing here. They're having a dispute over who is worthy of the most glory. Who is the greatest? Who will be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom? You know, and I mean, what, what was their argument? Like, what case did they make? I mean, were they, was, it, was it James? And James was saying, hey, do you remember when we were out on our mission, when Jesus sent us out on our mission, and I casted out that particular demon? Of course I'm going to be the... I mean, what was the nature of that actual argument? 
who was to be regarded as the greatest? Right? Was it Peter? Because Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And earlier in Luke, he said the Christ of God. Was, was he the greatest? Because he was the one who made this confession. Who was the one who Jesus was going to exalt over all and have servants under them? I mean, who is the one worthy of the greatest glory? And of course, this is just pride. It's pride. It's self-promotion and self-exaltation and self-grandeur. The desire for greatness run amok. This is what the devil wanted. This is right, the sin of the evil one. It is rebellion against God. Wanting the glory of God at all costs. And wanting to steal the glory of God. This is what Adam wanted when his heart was lifted up against God and he passively stood by in the deception and temptations of his wife, listening to her. This is one of a handful of the age-old sins of the human heart. You know, you've, you've heard it said probably by somebody that pride's kind of the root of all sin, and um, certainly pride is the root of a lot of sin, but it's not the only root. You know, pride is one of maybe a, a trinity of sins, a, uh, a triad of sins like idolatry and unbelief and pride that are always at work in the human heart, pride being one significant one, operating in the heart of the disciples, operating in humankind since the beginning, and operating in all of us even now. And I think when you read this and you think, you look at the disciples and you think they're just idiots. The Lord's table, right in front of Jesus, you're going to have this argument about who's the greatest? It's like, where, where was the one who said, where was, the, where was the one who said, yeah, but guys, do you remember the time when none of us could cast out that demon? And Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief. But we look at them and we judge them. And we think to ourselves, what kind of idiots are they? And what we think about ourselves, if you're honest with your own heart, what we think about ourselves is if we were there at the Lord's table with Jesus, we, we always think about ourselves like we're the one who would have said, hey guys, really sure this is probably the best argument for us to make right now. And at the very moment that we look at a text of Scripture, and we're always doing this. Do you know you're always doing this when you look at your Bible? Do you know that about yourself? I'm telling you something that's true. The, different, the, the, the issue is not whether what I'm saying is true. The issue is whether are you self-aware 
Are you aware of the way your own heart functions when you look at Scripture? And in the very moment where you think you would never have gotten into this argument, in this moment, right before Jesus, you are doing the exact same thing in the church of God, in the hearing of the Word of God, in the hearing of the truth of God, and going, I'm greater than them. So do I say that because I'm a shepherd who likes to say mean things to you? Daniel shakes his head yes. But Daniel knows me far better than that. No, I just say it because we need our pride disciplined. We need our pride disciplined. And we need reminded of how actually level the playing field is amongst those who, you know, Scripture says of man, do only evil in their hearts continually. And we need reminded of how near at the doorstep of our hearts are we ready to erupt in spontaneous pride. Even in the most intimate environment, even in the intimacy of what is to be the marital relationship. How quick pride is at the doorstep of a husband. And how quickly pride is at the doorstep of a wife. And the root of the conflict is really who is the greatest. It's always at the doorstep of good men. been said, every man is out to build his own kingdom. Remember, the issue is not wrestling with the truth of that. It is true. The issue is, do you know how you are out to build your own kingdom? The kingdom that puts you in the greatest place of victory and of glory. And a husband seeks to build his own kingdom in his own house and until he's the only one left in his own house. A wife seeks to build her own kingdom in her own house and force her husband and her children to build exactly what she thinks is the kingdom of her glory until she's the only one in the house. It's ever, ever, ever at the doorstep of good men.
Secondly, this, pride is the source of endless strife. Right? It's a, this is a dispute. I'm greater. No, I'm greater. No, I'm greater. No, I'm going to be at the top. I'm going to be next to Jesus. I'm going to be on the right hand. I'm going to be on the left. No, I am. No, I am. No, I am. No, I am. And that's the nature of what's happening here. This is strife rooted in human pride. You know, it's like, it's like children. It's like children. You know, when you send a group of children away to play, what do you always know is going to happen? They go play on the trampoline, or they go play in the backyard, or they go play... Have them go play a game together. Where there's actually really something to win. What do you always know is going to happen? Well, what my kids do is they go away and they play and they play in perfect kindness and perfect humility and they love and serve one another and they... I mean, I've trained them to do that. That's what they do. Ah. No, they... You know, you have like a few minutes pass by, and eventually one of them's coming, complaining about something, and something somebody did. Somebody did something wrong, somebody wronged them, somebody hurt them in some way, shape, or form. And so they come. And of course, some of these things, obviously, you actually have to solve. It's, it's significant enough, sure. But they come, and do you ever notice that every time that they come and do this, they are guiltless of all sin? They, they are the most pure, most innocent humans on the face of planet Earth. And so they do it with smugness and self-righteousness, right? Because this is what children do. It's just what children do. And I think I'm just going to start saying, I think I'm just going to start saying, you know, how does God want you to go love a person like that? (laughs) How does God want you to love a sibling like that? Who did that horrendous, awful thing to you? And this is what the disciples are like. They're like children. And this is what the church is like. And you have to realize the intimacy of a church environment. Remember, disciples are with Jesus at the Lord's table. And the intimacy, and I don't just mean the church environment, like what we do on an hour for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. I mean in the church family, the intimacy of what is the church family. I mean, how many churches are in endless strife in the last year because of pride? Whose opinion is the greatest about masks and whose opinion is the greatest about vaccines? Oh, for crying out loud. I could think of about a thousand things this church needs to take way more seriously than our opinions about masks and vaccines. 
Okay, what's your opinion? It's my opinion. And is not the source of constant strife. Constant strife. At least in significant part, and I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about those who have the truth. And I'm not talking about those who hate the light and hate the truth, and that their issue with truth is just that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the church of Jesus Christ, endless division and endless strife about any number of things that's really rooted in who has the greatest thought and opinion about, you name, one thing on the list of a thousand. And ultimately, at the heart of it is just this. I want to win the argument. The greatest glory I could receive right now in life is that I win this argument with my husband. And that he bows down to me and he says he was wrong. And that's my greatest glory in life. That's the thing I live for more than anything else. I want to win. I want to win because in my heart is a desire for glory. And really, all that matters to me in this moment of conflict, and the reason the conflict persists, and the reason it goes on and on and on ad infinitum, is because no one's willing to lose. And so, husband, or wife, or parent, friend, how often do you just say, you know, I probably need to think about that a little bit. Or, you know, you're right, and I'm wrong. Or, I don't know, and I don't know the answer. Or how about this? I've lived to be the one who's right for so long, and I just don't want to do that anymore. Some of you should go home, and you should say to somebody in your home, you know, the most important thing to me has been that I'm right and that I win this argument. And that argument. And until you lose, 
I will not be satisfied and I will not be happy. And that's terrible wickedness. And it's evil. And I need to get all of it out of my heart. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it out of my heart and life. And there's no hope. And if you're single, you need to hear this because you need to know exactly what's at the heart of marriage before you get there. This is so important for you. If you're a student, you're thinking about getting married one day. You need to get these things figured out now. Trust me. You don't want to be going to your pastor 25 years down the road having got this wrong. One of the most important questions that you can ask, I think, if you want a marriage that is going to honor God, and if you want to be a husband that's going to honor God, and if you want to be a wife who's going to honor God, and you have conflict, and probably some of you have conflicts that you've just kind of shoved down so far that you don't even ever want to touch them because as soon as you touch them, you know there's actually going to be fighting. First of all, there's no way around that. There's no way around that. You know. If you haven't if you haven't actually kept current with the conflicts in your in your home and in your marriage and, and solved today's problems today and, and you've actually disobeyed God in that and you've given the devil an opportunity, Ephesians chapter four, right, verses twenty five through twenty seven, twenty six and twenty seven, you've given the devil an opportunity, a foothold in your relationship, in your marriage, and there's conflicts that you've just shoved down. You said, yeah, we're just, we just don't go there. That foothold of the devil isn't going to go away easy. Right? But you've got to get the snake out and have a fight, cut its head off. One of the ways to cut its head off is to ask yourself the question in regards to these kinds of things, where is the pride here? Have you ever stopped yourself in a conflict? Except for you who have conflict-free relationships. Raise your hand if you have conflict-free relationships. Have you ever stopped yourself and just said, where is the pride here? Because right? you can be kind of going back and forth about this or that thing, but if you're holding pride in your heart, the desire is to win, the desire is to be the greatest, and the desire is to get the other person to lose, all of this is just chatter. Nothing will get solved, and it will only get worse. You have to deal with your heart of pride and see that it is a source of endless conflict, endless, endless strife. 
the dispute right, arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, it's important to note that the world celebrates pride. The world celebrates pride. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus now, Jesus now just beautifully enters into this situation. Right? The disciples are arguing, and Jesus just, Jesus just speaks. And here's what he says in verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now, that's a little bit hard, probably that word benefactor is a little bit hard for us to get our mind around because anybody today, anybody in power over us, we just hate them and see no value in them. And generally, though it's not entirely true if you think about our political landscape, um, we certainly don't celebrate them culture-wide just because we're divided. But what, we, what, what was commonplace is, you know, you have, the, you have the Gentile king, let's say Augustus Caesar, for instance. They would actually write on their epitaphs, benefactor. You know, a person who kind of oversees the people and the people look to as a good... Um, uh, well, an example of all, all the, what's good and great in the world and a, and a help to the world. And what the world celebrates is self-exaltation and self-promotion and power and authority and lordship. And, right? uh, and people praise celebrity or the CEO of a company. Think about your history class. When did you ever study somebody um, of any significance in the world who wasn't powerful, who wasn't a leader of some movement, who didn't you know, leave some great mark in history? You don't study nobodies. And this is because this is, this is how the world celebrates pride. Lordship, authority, you know, power, and everybody celebrates it. They're called benefactors. So we celebrate them. And Jesus then just says, but not so, but not so with you. So he's going to teach them a new way. And I would encourage you, as you think about pride, I'm going to give a personal story uh, that hopefully will have a hint of humor in it to um, help you think about how important it is to root pride out of your life. When we, this was about three years ago, some of you will remember this, but if not, it'll be fun for you. Three years ago, we had been on our house, our new house, maybe six months, and kind of doing all the work. And, you know, when you get into a new house, you kind of, uh, you know, how you find things. You know, it's like, oh, I didn't see that, you know, when I was just looking through the house for four minutes. And, and you find things. 
you know, there's a hole in the wall or there's this or that thing. And, um, but six months after, about six months after we were in the house, and we, we, had, we had kind of had some snakes around here or there, you know. And, uh, but we're like, well, we live next to the woods. There's kind of a swamp back behind our house. It's, you know, it's kind of just to be expected, right? And then um, my wife saw, uh, one, of the, one of the times, uh, she saw the snake actually go um, through a wall of our house behind a, a vent grate to our fireplace, behind the vent grate, and through a wall and, and into our house. And so we're thinking, oh, great, we have snakes in our house. And so I did, you know, I did the thing that a husband would do. I went to Lowe's. I got some spray insulation foam. And I was like, well, the next time the snake is the snake or snakes, we don't know how many we have at this point. The next time the snake is out, I'll take the spray foam and go seal up the area where they're living. Now, fortunately, in our house where they're at, it's actually all sealed off. It was um, under an additional floor that was built up. And we sealed off as far as we know. And then one afternoon, the sun was setting, and I don't remember who saw it first, but looking out our front window, we, when we first moved in, there was all this landscaping around the house, bushes and, and things, looking right out the window, and the sun was shining right on one of this, this kind of little pine tree bush. And there were snakes all over it. There were snakes. In fact, we have a picture of it. There were, I, uh, you can't see it. But anyway, there's a couple. Sometime when we have our own building and can control the light, we can use this thing. Um, but there was four snakes in this little pine tree bush. You can see it's right next to our house, probably. And it's right next to the front window in our house. And there were four snakes in this bush, just like right there. You know, kind of freaky. And so I ran and got the, um, you know, the spray and insulation. I was like, oh, this has got to be all of them. They all got to be out right now. <laughs> you know? There's a whole family. Cousins and all are here. And uh, sealed, off, sealed off the crack where they were going into and living. We're like, I mean, we have a, not just a snake living in there. We have, a, we have a snake nest. And, of course, how do you feel about having a snake nest inside the walls of your house? I mean, maybe some of you who just love reptiles a whole lot, maybe. It's kind of cringeworthy, right? And so, what did we do? Well, we know it, like, obviously all of our landscaping around the house is just giving them cover to live in and live under, and, and uh, so this is, what, this is what we did next, and it's going to be unfortunate. Oh, maybe you can see it. So, uh, Caleb has some kind of weapon, and I think Selah has maybe a gun, and I think Anya maybe is just praying. And, of course, I have the chainsaw out because we're going to cut out every bush and every, you know, I mean, everything close to our house that these snakes can hide in and live in and nest in is going to be cut down and removed and thrown into the fire, you know? And so that's what we did. We just cut all the landscaping out. We sealed up the crack. Of course, we took care of the snakes, but, you know, shovels are good for that kind of thing if you ever have need. And now, why am I grossing you out? Because I just want you to understand that pride 
living in your heart, living for your own kingdom and your own selfish ambition and your own grandeur and looking at other people and looking at your spouse and looking at your children as if you are the greatest is as disgusting as the snakes that are living inside your house. And you've got to do everything you can to get rid of the nasty wretchedness that it is. Every spiritual weaponry has to be deployed. Every effort has to be made for your repentance. Or what Jesus says here, you'll hear it, you'll think, well, that's a nice thought. Actually, what you'll think is, oh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's what you'll think. You'll think that's what I'm doing. I'm the greatest servant in our home. Why does my spouse not recognize that I'm the greatest servant in our home? You'll think, why does my spouse not do what Jesus says here? You'll actually do the most corrupt thing. You will twist the scripture to build your own kingdom in your house, and you will say, because you think you're the greatest in your home, You will say, I am doing what Jesus said. Doesn't matter whether everybody in the house disagrees, you know. And it's horrible. And so Jesus gives his example himself. He says, But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or the one who serves? You know, you show up in a restaurant, you eat dinner, who's the one who's greater? The one who's eating or the one who serves? Jesus answers that's not the one who reclines at table. And of course, he's talking about himself. He says, is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. greatest one. Who is the greatest? Well, Jesus, obviously. Isn't that interesting how when you're on your own program of thinking you're the greatest, um, how much Jesus isn't the answer to that question? how far Jesus is from your heart and mind when you're completely uh, absorbed with your own self-importance and how what Jesus wants in conflict and your relationship is never really the issue because what you want is the issue And what would be pleasing to Jesus in the midst of the conflict that you're in? Yeah, 
isn't really the question that gets asked because all that matters in your inflated view of your self-importance is what's going to be pleasing to me. But I am among you the great one, the greatest one, the Lord Jesus Christ is among them as one who serves. Jesus, whom the scripture says of him, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That Jesus is among them as one who serves. The one that the scripture says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That Jesus is among them as one who serves. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And preeminent in his service. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, his service to these disciples, and his service to you who believe. And so what Jesus is saying is, follow my example of service. I've given up. I've given up the glory, the divine glory that I possess in heaven in the, in the sense that it's veiled. And you're not seeing my glory manifest in its fullness here because I'm here to serve. And serve in the greatest and most sacrificial act of loving service beyond what anyone could, any human could have ever come up with to understand the love of God and the service of Jesus Christ to his people and to his church forever, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so follow him in his service. You know, sometimes I think we just lose sight of the fact that we're just here to serve. You're here to serve in your home. You're here to serve in your, your roommates. You're here to serve in the church. You're here to serve in the workplace. You know, as pastors and elders, we're just here to serve you. We're here to serve our neighbors. We're here to be a help to people. We're here to lift up the poor. We're here to encourage the faint-hearted. We're here to help the weak. We're just here to serve just here to serve. So follow Jesus in his example. And then 
Jesus gives these remarkably gracious encouragements to close this passage. And if you can, you realize like how irritated you would be if you were watching the disciples do this. And Jesus is the greatest one. And you expect him to just respond, you know, with some kind of just disappointment or some kind of frustration or some kind of discouragement. And he does correct and rebuke them constantly, as should be. But look what he says. Verse 28. Two encouragements. Here's the first one. Jesus has a gracious view of his disciples. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That is a, st- that is a just stunningly gracious statement. Because in all of our pride and all of our pursuit of our own greatness, God's view of us and Jesus' view of his disciples here isn't merely that's all we are. Don't you think, I think you probably at some time, if you don't still think this way about Jesus, think Jesus just walked with his disciples in kind of a low-level irritation with them all the time. Jesus didn't walk with his disciples in just a constant low-level irritation with them all the time. Because if he did, you would see all kinds of bursts and spats of anger. But what you see is Jesus saying here, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. It meant something to Jesus that his disciples were with him in his trials. It meant something to Jesus, the man of sorrows, that his disciples were with him in his trials and they stayed with him in his trials. And what you think is that Jesus just constantly is just disappointed with you, and that's how you view Him. But you judge Him harshly. Jesus loves that His disciples stay with Him. Jesus takes delight in the presence of His people remaining with Him. And he says it right into the midst of all of our pride, meaning he doesn't judge them merely by their pride, but he sees them not just for their infirmities. He sees them in a greater way for their graces. He sees, he sees virtues where it seems like there actually isn't any. 
And you need to think of Jesus having a a gracious disposition towards you. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. And I don't want you to live your life thinking of God that He just doesn't like you. He's loved you at the cross, but He just doesn't really like you. Jesus liked having the disciples with Him, staying with Him in His trials. It was really meaningful to Him. And of course, what He's really telling them is, You will be great in my kingdom. But don't pursue living for your own greatness now. The second thing he gives is this gracious promise to his disciples. He says, verse 30, Assign to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom that sit on the thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Is what the disciples are promised here in any way, shape, or form a one-to-one correspondence between what they deserve and what they will receive in eternity. I used to joke, you know, I started skateboarding in middle school. I transitioned to uh, BMX careful about the word transition today. I stopped skateboarding and started BMX biking um, uh, kind of later on in middle school and um, became a Christian and, you know, did ministry to skateboarders and built skate parks and stuff like that for a little while. And um, we used to joke, you know, I'm probably going to be the one riding a skateboard. Skateboard's going to be my vehicle in heaven. And it's, you know, it's like just the way you think about yourself, you know? It's just the way you think about yourself. And then I read this this week and studied this this week, and I thought, you know, I bet nobody's on a skateboard in heaven. I bet nobody's traveling by skateboard in heaven. Because that thinking is, is kind of, you know, our attempts to be humble and, and think. That kind of thinking is actually much more rooted in thinking. There's a one-to-one correspondence between the um, riches of God's grace and kindness to us, the immeasurable riches of God's gracious, grace and kindness to us that await us in the fullness of his kingdom. That's rooted in kind of this one-to-one correspondence. Well, I'm kind of a lame Christian, so skateboard's probably the best I've got. And I just want you to understand that what Jesus is promising here is not a one-to-one correspondence between all of our work and all of our reward. It is a reward far beyond anything that we could ever imagine ourselves to deserve. Because he doesn't treat us according to our transgressions, but according to his mercy. So, 
students, don't pursue going through college to make a name for yourself. Don't pursue the work you're doing there with a view towards your great respect and people cheering your name and to women, the women in particular. Don't pursue respect in the workplace as your principle. Somebody, please, would you please go home and tell your spouse you've got something wrong and it's rooted in your pride. And would you ask forgiveness for something, please? Because somebody's got to go first in losing. Because someone else is more important to them in their mindset than they are to themselves. Because Jesus went first in losing for the salvation of the souls of everyone here who believes. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Jesus, thank you for graciously encouraging our hearts that it's meaningful to you that we're here with you. And that with all of our pride and all of our greatness that we think we have, with all of our ambition and all of our desire to win and to have servants under us and all of our desire to value in the, in the church those who have power and great glory and to heed all of their words as if they're always speaking your truth. And all of our failure, you look at us graciously. And just the fact that we're with you really means something to you. Teach us the way of service as you have shown us. Let us hope for the exaltation of the humble at the proper time. In your son's name, amen.